Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. today. We're actually recording a series of conversations about women in power, women as role models, and women as they're depicted in film. In this three-part series, we'll be talking to Colleen Griffin, the producer of a political thriller called An Acceptable Loss, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Tika Sumter. We're also talking to former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock and A.B. Stoddard from Real Clear Politics. Each of these women brings tremendous knowledge, experience, and expertise to the topic of women in power. Women as role models, even when sometimes those role models may be morally or ethically challenged, and women in film in particular, and how all of these themes ultimately intersect. A big thanks to the producers of An Acceptable Loss, Corrado Mooncoin, Colleen Griffin and Joe Chappelle, and Candy Strait for their support of She Said, She Said, and for helping to make this series of conversations possible. Barbara Comstock is our next guest to talk about the film An Acceptable Loss and also women in politics and power. Barbara, of course, is a former congresswoman from Virginia, as well as a former Virginia state legislator. Prior to that, she served in very senior staff roles at the Department of Justice and on Capitol Hill, uh, both in the post-9-11 environment, which is a lot of what we're talking about as part of this movie. Barbara also happens to be a good friend of mine, so I'm really happy to see you. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Welcome and wonderful to be with you, Laura. I've really enjoyed a lot of your podcasts and just think this is wonderful how you're highlighting so many senior women and the diversity of all the women out there and their activities. Thank you. Well, we're so happy to have you on and great to be here with you. So you have had an opportunity to work both as a staffer, a second in command, as well as a principal, similar to what we saw in this movie. Talk a bit about the pressure associated with being in one of those roles, especially when you find yourself in a position of perhaps disagreeing with your boss. Hopefully you never faced anything that was quite as <laughs> consequential as what we're talking about in the movie. But in general, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, like like you said, I uh, something like this movie, um, which obviously it's a great thriller and highly recommend it. It was it was great to watch, and you have two very strong women in it. But I have to say, did not have any experiences like that. But you know, it's I think it's uh, the best of times and the worst of times to be a woman in in politics. And you know, the best of times is that uh, you know women have more opportunity than ever before. When I came to Congress in, in 2014, when I was elected, I'd already been in the State House for five years, served at the Justice Department, worked in Congress myself as a staffer, uh, but that was the first year we had over 100 women ever serve at the same time in Congress. So a little over 20%, you know, it's about the same in the Senate. So you've heard a lot of the focus from last year on sort of year of the woman, but 2014 was the first year that we actually went over the 100 mark. Right now, 
Uh, even though we had there were a lot of women that won elections last year, they also um, didn't go up that much because there aren't as many Republicans. So mm-hmm. it's about 23 point something percent in the House. It was about 21. So the Republicans going in reverse <laughs> has uh, led to fewer. And I think if we are going to have um, a diverse group of women and if we're ever going to reach parity, you are going to have to have more Republican women because I don't see the Democrat guys standing aside and letting the women have all the spots. Right. Uh, women are about 38, 39 percent of the Democratic caucus right now in the House, 6.5 percent of Republicans. In the Senate, it's a little better. I think they're about, um, we have eight Republican women senators, I think it mm-hmm. is, and 17 uh, Democrat women, so 25 percent over there, but still fewer. We have some new Republican governors. So you do see more, and you see more women, you know, in our lifetime, we've seen, you know, um, uh, Condoleezza Rice be uh, Secretary of State. Actually, Madeleine Albright was first. You have women like Wendy Sherman, who I was just finishing up a semester at Harvard, and she was a high-ranking State Department official, very much involved in the Iran nuclear treaty, Mm -hmm. you know, negotiations. So you do have more and more women in these roles. So it, it, I think what the movie did is it, it put uh, women villains in sort of an equal role (laughs) as the same way as there have been men. So uh, (laughs) while I have not, my experience has more been the women have been the conciliator, you know, try to work with people and probably would not have been either proposing those things or acquiescing to them. But I still thought it was, you know, an interesting dynamic to see the movie. Do you think it matters in the fact that both of these lead characters were, let's say, flawed, <laughs> morally challenged? You can, you can use your own terminology. Um, does it matter as it relates to role models? Well, I would have liked to have seen them more um, conflicted. You know, certainly I thought so, you know, when you're talking about a nuclear situation, I don't know anyone, male or female, who wouldn't have had much more conflict in dealing with that. And a little bit of history, you know, maybe going back to Truman's days and how we dealt with it probably would have been more helpful. But I I think there were other issues and dynamics in the movie that were really driving sort of the thriller status of it. But I do think, you know, one of the reasons, you know, uh, that, um, you know, I mean, I voted against um, the Iran deal because I'm very concerned about you know, them getting a nuclear weapon and didn't th- and thought this was a flawed deal. I was over in Israel the summer before we voted on that, had the privilege of being able to sit down with diverse point of views while we were there, including um, Netanyahu and uh, really getting a firsthand briefing from him on the issues. But we heard from people opposed, too, while we were there. And obviously, we had a very uh, rigorous debate on that. And I felt like that was one of the more rigorous debates we had because we all take the nuclear threat so seriously. So I think even if you come down on different sides of this, you have a very, very rigorous debate when you're talking about nuclear weapons, whether it's on North Korea or Iran. And certainly none of us want them to get those uh, weapons. And certainly the idea of using it um, would probably have a lot more discussion (laughs) and a lot more pushback than uh, you would have seen in the movie. But that being said, I think there were the focus of it elsewhere was the the conflict and how you deal with the moral qual you know threat of anybody being involved in war and sending uh, you know and having having bombs, any type of bombs 
um, dropping from anywhere and how, and how you deal with that. And I think my experience at the Justice Department and, uh, you know, I remember, I think there was just one or two times that I actually was sitting in the situation room. And when you are in the situation room, even I was there as a communications person dealing with when we started, um, uh, you know, the war back in, I guess it was 2002, right? Mm-hmm. It was something that we all felt so gravely. Now, the decisions had already been made at that point of mm-hmm. things that might start at some point. But the gravity of that and how serious everybody took it. And at that time, people forget now, but it was a bipartisan decision and there was a lot of input on that. So I I do think um, even though things have gotten very partisan these days and it is forgotten that you had, for example, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden uh, voted for this. I guess Chuck Schumer probably did, too, if I'm recalling correctly. Chuck Schumer also voted against the Iran deal. So these issues usually are very bipartisan, even though in the movie it probably reflected more of today's politics. than, And, of course, it was set in today's time, right, so that's right. why. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to uh, your work as a member of Congress and also as a member of the Virginia State Legislature, I know you believe strongly that it does matter to have more women in these roles. It's not just about checking boxes and saying, okay, we have as many as you do, and et cetera, et cetera. Why does it matter? Help, help articulate for our audience, for those people who still struggle with this notion of why having women at the table is important, why does it matter? Well, because we are half the population and we're also a diverse group of women. You know, when you look at just the general dynamics, maybe not to today because you do see the gender uh, gap, you know, once again is sort of exacerbated. But in general, women split about evenly, Democrat, Republican. Men split, split evenly. But now men are a little bit more Republican. Women are a little bit more Democrat. But by and large, depending on your state, you have uh, men and women who are a diverse and split group. We now have a much more uh, diverse population overall. I was privileged to represent an area where it really does look like America. You know, we uh, we had a large Asian population, multifaceted you know, um, Asian population. You know, we had Indian, we had um, a Korean, we had Chinese, we had uh, Japanese, we had uh, Vietnamese, and and all of the things that come with that. You know, refugees and and people coming from all over the world. We had Pac- you know, Pakistani. We had you know, multiple you know, religions. Uh, we didn't have as large of an African-American population as the national average, but we also had a large Latino population. So you want to have men and women from all those areas. So when people who have to, you know, at the end of the day, you want to have people feel like this is their government. You want to be able to look up on TV, no matter who's making decisions, if it's health care, if it's national security, um, if it's uh, tax policy that you see someone, you know, where am I in the picture? And I remember back when I was, you know, at the Justice Department and Condi Rice, you know, was on the national security team and Colin Powell, I could say, you know, my daughter is looking at that picture and seeing that Condi Rice is making these decisions about these very serious issues in national security, you know, as well as uh, Colin Powell. And we really did have that diversity. And that was, you know, 18 um, years ago when, you know, my daughter was just a little, you know, a junior high kid. Now she's a mom and <laughs> herself. And so 
I think that's important. So I've been very active in getting more women to run. You know, when I ran, I never planned on doing this. And people came to me, I think in large part because the seat that I was running in when I was in the state house was held by a Democrat woman. It had been held by a man, Republican man for 40 years. And then we lost it. So in some ways, the guys came to me and said, we need a woman. You know, they really, they didn't think the seat could be won, right. but they said, we're looking for a woman. Uh, now, I didn't realize it at the time, but I didn't realize how few women we had on on our side in the state house. And so I became um, involved in really trying to recruit and realizing how hard it was to get women to off, often, you know, certainly in my area, very successful women who it's a pay cut when you take sure. um, to do this. Now, you can have people who it's not a pay cut for, but it was a $17,000 job. Right. <laughs> now it was part time. <laughs> so I was able to juggle, you know, my kids were grown. I could juggle my business, which I had at that point, and my personal uh, practice, as well as doing this, uh, a part time job. And I thoroughly loved it and really tried to work hard to recruit other women. By the time it came to run for Congress, I didn't have to be pushed at that time. But for men enlisting me, I might not have ever run, kind of pushed me in the pool. And now I realize at this point, you know, a lot of men and women came to me and said, we need you to run in this seat. Mm -hmm. And I was ready to jump in and didn't have to be pushed. And I realized then that I wanted to support women, you know, more women. We came in, we had a class of six of us, very diverse backgrounds. I know, you know, Elise Stefanik, who was the youngest sure. woman elected. Been on the podcast. And then, yeah. Yes. And um, <laughs> Uh, Mia Love, who African-American Republican woman, uh, Martha McSally, who is the first female pilot, who's now she's now a senator uh, from Arizona, so, and, and Mimi Walters. So we had an exciting group of us that were going around the country, and we really were focusing on trying to recruit women, too. Um, while I'm not there in Congress anymore, one of the things that I'm very actively working on is uh, working with about four of the groups who are getting more women to run. We just won a race last week. Well, we won a runoff in a primary. Mm -hmm. So we are now in North Carolina. So we're now focused on that race and getting more women to get not just in these swing districts like I was. You know, we don't want to be stuck in the swing uh, seat ghetto, which is like, oh, you could run because none of the guys want to run. Yeah. We want women running in all of the seats. So in these very solid red seats where they can stay and serve for a long time, say a state like uh, West Virginia, where Shelly Moore Capito um, is, it's a very Republican seat, but she is, you know, a great member and she can be there and work as she did. You know, we worked on the opioids issues together. We worked on sexual harassment issues together. I was able to work with uh, Joni Ernst and, you know, again, all the aforementioned members on issues like sexual harassment. And when we had that bill, here's why it's important to have Republican as well as Democrat women. We both wanted to get it done, mm -hmm. and we actually we sat down, and there was no difference between Republican uh, women and Democrat women on that issue. And I was able to pass uh, a bill, you know, requiring more education for Congress, and held hearings uh, on a bipartisan basis with my Democrat colleagues on how we need to be much more aggressive on this issue. And we had I could go to my caucus and enlist Republican men to be our allies on this and tell any of the reluctant people to get on board because this was important. As everyone knows now, after Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and Roger Ailes, as well as all the Hollywood, this is a bipartisan problem. 
And we worked on it really on a nonpartisan basis to get things done. And I think if we hadn't had a critical mass of Republican women working on this and very actively um, working on it, that it might have gotten lost in a Republican Congress and it could have become a partisan issue when we know it's not. Yeah. What is it that is unique about women who it feels like are increasingly inclined to want to work across the aisle? Well, I I think uh, you certainly have a a lot of different professions and a lot of professional women in Congress. Um, So you whether you've been a teacher or a lawyer or a pilot, you've had to negotiate things with with men because we've been largely in male professions often for the professional women who are there. Not that you don't have, but even if you're, say, if you've been in a nurse and you've been in a profession that used to be dominated by women, you still were working with men in a profession where men often weren't listening to the women when the nurses might know more about the particular health situation you're in. So I think they've been used to doing that. And uh, I think it, and now, over time, learning to um, engage uh, their voices and make sure their voices are heard. And that was, you know, in the movie, you know, in the Situation Room, to go back to there was a woman who sort of also stood up and objected. One thing that was interesting, the men were kind of silent um, and kind of let an aggressive vice president woman kind of bowl them over a little bit more. I always expected and, and hired, and this is one of the things as as I've been teaching over the past semester that I've always emphasized that I think is very important in any profession you're in. First of all, surround yourself with right people and people who are willing to push back against you and others against bad ideas. And don't just accept what the boss is saying or what the powers that be are saying or what might be political. And so the movie itself made me think about, like, where was I in those kind of situations where I had to push back and say, I don't think this is a good idea and do it in a way where I wasn't fighting. I was just like trying to educate and find allies. And one of the things I thought of, you know, certainly not as serious as a nuclear (laughs) situation, but when I was at the Justice Department, I headed up the Public Affairs Office, and you had situations where some of our prosecutors wanted to subpoena reporters. Now, I had to work with the reporters day to day, and I knew that wasn't a good idea, but I knew there were some people actually not at the Justice Department, but at the White House, who just, they were sick of the leaks. You know, you hear whether it's President Trump or President Obama, who actually investigated a lot of reporters and subpoenaed people, or back in the days of President Bush. And I knew, you know, no good could come from that. That is not going to be good. I had worked with reporters enough to know, first of all, why would you want to subpoena their notes? They're always a mess. Half the time they're inaccurate. I didn't want anyone to be indicted on the basis of a reporter's notes. So uh, when they came, the way it worked at the Justice Department is I was one of the, I was the first person that had to sign off on a subpoena of a press person. And then it had to go up the chain through the criminal division, the deputy attorney general, ultimately to the attorney general. So some prosecutors had come in and they they had gone to the criminal division and they wanted it to be a sign off. And I just knew from researching it, this hadn't been done much. I didn't want to do it. And frankly, I wasn't being pushed that hard to do it, but it came in from one of these aggressive prosecutors. So Ted Olson happened to be the solicitor general at this point, and he had been somebody who had worked with the press, and actually he had worked when um, you had leaks during the Clarence Thomas case. Ted Olson, who was a good friend of Clarence Thomas and one of the premier Supreme Court uh, litigators, also had rep- re- ended up representing the press in their right to receive a leak, 
and move forward with it. So he represented the reporter in that case. So I went to Ted and I said, it's not a good idea to subpoena the press, is it? (laughs) No, Ted did not think it was. Well, I've got this case and this situation. And so we talked about it, you know, and I, I went around to others and sort of gathered allies and knew those people with broad experience. And so then I could go in and talk to uh, Mike Chertoff, who was a criminal division chief at that point. And he was very sympathetic. He said, no, you're right. Because um, the standard was you have to exhaust all other remedies before you subpoena the press. And I could really look through this, as could Mike and others, and say they had not exhausted all the remedies. So instead of being intimidated, like, oh, my goodness, somebody up there, somebody more powerful than I am, a prosecutor or my boss, seems to want this subpoena. And if I don't sign off on it, I'm going to be the bad one here. That was not the experience at all, because I did my homework. I really had looked and seen who my allies were, who were there, and their knowledge base that would fill in maybe experiences that I didn't have. And I knew when something didn't feel right to go to those people and to talk it out, to work it out. And it ended up being very conciliatory at the end. But kind of when I'm looking at the movie, instead of just saying going along, the one thing I noted in it, here you had this woman, the smartest person in the room, so talented, knew her stuff, but she hadn't done something that I know people like Wendy Sherman recommends and I, I myself recommend, which is get a group of allies, oftentimes develop a group of women allies in your workplace, but also get subject matter allies so that when you're faced with those real dilemmas, you can go to people who you trust and you don't get railroaded into doing something you know is wrong and something that you aren't going to be able to live with. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it takes a pretty confident person, too, as you just described the the scenario. It also takes a pretty confident person to be able to stand up and say, you know, hold on to to those who are, you know, you are uh, perhaps accountable to, right? Even though it's part of your job, that can be That's right, and they expect you to do it. I was not being, you you know, at the end of the day. You hope hope they do. That's true, and I was also comfortable, and I had great advice. I remember Larry Thompson, who was the deputy at that time, he said, don't ever not challenge something that you don't think is right. So he was a great, so even, and he ended up because the prosecutors weren't happy. I didn't know this till later. They kind of went and appealed to him and he backed me up and he thought it was the right thing to do to not do it that way. So he said, you always want to be able, and you always have to feel comfortable when you're in those senior roles that you can walk away if you don't think it is the right thing to do. And that shouldn't be something that people are afraid to do. At the moment, it can be contentious with your colleagues. But if your colleagues are smart, successful, strong people themselves, they appreciate some, even though they might be fighting you at that moment, think Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. They were friends at the end of their life, remember? Sure. But they, boy, did they go at it. And isn't our country better for it? So I, Abigail Adams had remembered the ladies. So I think when you know your history, when you know that, even though we don't have those women historically often to look back on, those are those same experiences. In the public, when you're a public servant, the public deserves you to be willing to lose your job if you have to mm-hmm. and to stand up for what you think is right. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, I had staff like that, and I'd always tell them, even when I'd sort of say, okay, no, I, I, I'm making this decision, and they'd come back at me and come back at me, <laughs> and I'd be like, you know what, first of all, I really appreciate that you're coming back because... You're, you've done your homework, and you're really smart, and it's not that I think you're wrong. It's just this is necessarily, and you may even be right, but this is where I'm going to go. 
but gosh, I appreciate that you pushed back and that you just didn't say yes and go do it because I, because I said so. Yeah. And, and you want to have people like that around you. Mm -hmm. And I think any woman particularly should develop a strong group of women friends who maybe are more senior to her who've been through some of these tougher things so they can go and get sort of an outside view that's a little dispassionate and then as well as you know subject matter experts all around yeah I mean a big part of that is the culture right the culture that you established in your office which made it you know that staffer feel safe to know that they could come to you even if you disagreed and he or she could come to you and say, hey, I have a different point of view. I really want you to think about this. Even if they come back to you repeatedly, they knew you weren't going to fire them. You established a culture that actually made that Yeah. You know, and in the movie, it's sort of the guy it is. who is yeah. really the bad guy <laughs> who doesn't even li doesn't listen and thinks, oh, I know what's best for you. That's the worst kind of staffer where they go and say, well, I'm going to do something that you don't want done necessarily because I know what's better for you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. So knowing that you work a lot on getting more women to run for office and ultimately get them elected, let's talk a bit more about what you see as the most significant barriers to entry. And by, by phrasing it that way, I mean sort of the broadest way we think about this. There are a lot of challenges to running for office. Talk a bit about what you think are the most significant ones. Well, you hear the usual things about money. They haven't been fundraisers or they're, um, they're not asked as much as men. But I think oftentimes it's um, that women themselves, as, as you, the, the studies that have been done, um, I think it was a Harvard study, but it's also, you know, Sheryl uh, Sandberg notes it in her book, mm -hmm. Lean In. And I certainly can relate to that where women go down the checklist and say, oh, I only have nine out of 10. I can't do it yet. Whereas the men will look at it and say, oh, I know six, I'll wing the rest, or, or they know two. Men tend to be more self-appointed to run. They've decided they were going to run from the time they were a kid. Look, Bill Clinton was going to run for office from the time he was, you know, in junior high. Um, the way I came to run for office is when I was older, my kids were grown. Like I said, they, they thought they wanted a woman, so they came to me, and I was kind of like, well, I'm not so sure. I had some crossed wires when I was talking with the Virginia Speaker of the House, who is a wonderful mentor, who I love and has been a dear friend, who he thought I had already announced, or I had already decided. So he announced to a crowded room that Barbara's decided to run. <laughs> and a friend of mine, male there, said, oh, no, she hasn't decided yet. And he said, oh, yes, she has. And everybody clapped. They didn't laugh. So I went home and I said to my husband, I think I'm going to run. I really like the speaker. He announced I was running. Let's give it a shot. So it was very serendipitous, and it wasn't until later I realized, boy, if I hadn't been pushed in the pool, might I have talked myself out of it? Mm. So and, while you and, don't, and, and would you have talked yourself out of it? Do you think? I, I think I could have, <laughs> and so that's why I started my young women's leadership program because I realized often, and then you know, and that was it wasn't really till I read the Lean In, uh -huh. watched that TED Talk, and kind of went through and said, oh my goodness. I accidentally got pushed in the pool. I always want to clarify. It wasn't like a mean push. It was he thought he was just right. cheering me on. As it turned out, it was an accidental push that I might not have done myself. So while you don't want to be pushed in the pool and you don't want someone to, I realized we had to be talking to young women and women of all ages more about, have you thought about yourself on this? And have you thought about you know, running for a school board, running for local office, all the different things you can do? Or even have you thought about asking for that promotion that the guys have often done 
So women tend to think they have to do more and prepare more. And not that that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. So good. Take that, the fact that you do more and prepare more and realize how you can use it. Women often don't realize that all of their skill sets in, you know, with their kids, with the relationships they've made or wondering, as I went knocking on doors in my first race and knocking on 10,000 doors, I was meeting people who had, I had their, you know, the baby shower for the teacher from the class. I had been, you know, the class mom. I had done the auction as well as, you know, done things in Congress and, and worked for various candidates. But your whole life comes together in public service. And that's the privilege of it and why it's a privilege that I think is very important for women to experience as well as men because it brings your whole life experiences together. So if you're voting on cancer research, you know, well, who are the caregivers usually? Women. And so you can look at this from the eye of someone who sat there at the bed, who's who's dealt with the diagnosis or, you know, other healthcare issues. Where are the, where are the deciders? I mean, where are the deciders on 80% of the purchases in the family? So that's why we don't give ourselves enough credit for the skills that we bring and how important it is for young women. I mean, I could always young girls, I'd be in a parade and like a young girl would run out and just like hug your legs away like your little grandkids do and just throw your arms around you because where am I in the picture? I, the time I was in Congress, I was the only female member of the Virginia delegation. They had no statewide women. They had no women members of Congress. That was it. So you mentioned your Young Women's Leadership Program that you started while you were in Congress and maybe even in the State House. In the State House. In the State House. And you have kept that up and you're continuing to build that out. What is that and what are you trying to accomplish with that program? Well, I started it six years ago for junior high and high school girls because I wanted to make sure young women weren't limiting themselves before they, and tracking themselves in a particular career before they needed to and expose themselves to women in leadership in all kinds of roles. So we bring in the first um, Indian American astronaut and talks about how she came to, you know, she loved science. She was growing up in Ohio. She goes, I was really different. But then, you know, that went into the military, was a pilot, never thought she'd be an astronaut that ends up being an astronaut. We had, we always start off with the Sheryl Sandberg TED Talk, mm-hmm. uh, starting with that. We had Sheila Johnson, who mm-hmm was the first African-American billionaire, but more important is just a philanthropic leader in our community, owns three sports teams. You know, no other woman, or I don't even know if there's guys who, I guess there are some guys who own three, but certainly the first woman who did, first African-American woman, lots of firsts there, owns a whole hospitality industry, started a network, just a phenomenal woman who came and spent time with young girls, and you could just see the lights going on. A couple of our girls started charities as a result of just being having that exposure, uh, getting them around tech leaders, getting them around um, military leaders. We went to the um, Women's War Memorial, and they heard from women leaders throughout the military. And then we always kick it off um, down in Congress, meeting congressional leaders, gone to the state house. But the whole idea is just to uh, get these young women thinking about themselves as leaders and what role is it? And it's not to decide that you have to run for office now, but just see yourself being a leader. And so now I'm thrilled that George Mason University has, is working with me to house it there. So the summer program will continue this summer. We will be getting up the information shortly on the website on how to apply. Uh, but then we also longer term want it to be developed into 
It's going to be the Barbara Comstock Program for Women in Leadership, taking women of all ages and stages of their careers and dealing with the leadership issues they face. Some of them that you saw in the movie here. So you think, we've got three women in our area who head up defense firms. What a great story for them to tell young women here that, you know, a a very uh, male-dominated industry now is so much more diverse. And these industries have worked with us for years, too, in the program. It's all about exposure, but then also it's like, where am I in the picture? Mm -hmm. Seeing yourself in the picture. And as we do that, everyone from Sheila Johnson to, you know, a local state official we had talk to the young girls, tell about their obstacles and their failures and how don't be afraid to fail because the guys go out and just dust themselves off and get back up. Yeah. So it's a way to really uh, open up your horizons. As it relates to your own personal story and your own personal journey, losing last fall was hard. How did you recover from that? How did you stop yourself from doing something that an awful lot of women will do, which is to over-personalize an outcome? What's your advice for dealing with something like that? Well, I think having worked on this for a long time and knowing, I mean, I was in a blue area kind of behind enemy lines for every race. I was never supposed to win any of my races. So every race when we'd win and do it all, I was like, wow, that's, you know, a surprise. So, you know, that it, it was such a privilege to work there. And I appreciated every moment that I was there and the people it exposed me to. So, and as I told, you know, I spent... Um, the semester at uh, at Harvard, going back and forth. Between you were, you were my, teaching, right? Yes, I was yeah. teaching. I've started at Baker Donaldson Law Firm, which was a great law firm. Baker Donaldson is one of the top firms for women in the country. There's only two law firms that are the best places to work, and Baker Donaldson is one of them. There were so many people and experiences that I've been exposed to that I knew, you know, if anything happened... There were so many more things that I wanted to do. And I always told the young women, I said, you don't have to decide what you want to be when you grow up. I haven't. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm still, there are so many new things. And I had a good friend of mine who always said, she goes, always be, you know, looking around and seeing all the things that are going, going on because you never know when some great new opportunity is there. So I am thrilled to be able to continue working on the things that I love. Because that's the thing. You know, when I was in office, I could work on, you know, I worked on human trafficking issues, passed legislation in the State House and Congress, worked on the opioid crisis, worked to help our veterans, worked on tax policy, which was really something I always loved working on from the time I was a staffer. All the STEM women initiatives that I did. Um, so a lot of the bills I had were like multi-year. So I feel like I can still see that all impacted. And now from the role of what I'm doing, I'm able to still work in almost all of those areas. And I knew that from my previous jobs Mm -hmm. as I went, whether it was at the Justice Department or in Congress or when I was in the private sector before or working on other people's campaigns or when I was a candidate and then the member myself, is I always focused on the issues and the things that I was passionate about so that whatever seat I held in the private or public sector that I could advance those causes. So I feel very much like I still am able to do very much that same work. So I feel like all of the things that I was so privileged to do in Congress, I still am able to do. Certainly something that I learned early on, and I know you have too with your wonderful husband and your family, is whatever you're doing, make sure you got your family right and your friends because 
when you have a family, someone to love to do this for, people and friends to do it for, it makes your successes that much more meaningful, but it also makes does you know a failure a speed bump. And it actually teaches you. You know, everyone says, you know, your failures you learn as much from. So I feel like all of those things that I cared about continue and I get a little bit more time with my wonderful grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's been delightful. And and I don't think there's there's not many things uh, that you aren't able to find another way to do it. So any interest in running again? I tell people I lived the unplanned life. The last thing I planned was my <laughs> wedding, which was, let's see, 36 years ago. I think the unplanned life is very fun. So, you know, when you, you you know when something happens and something is, is right for you and you, you should be doing something. So right now, I love what I'm doing right now. And it's always, when you love what you're doing right now, and the other thing I tell is, Make sure the people you're around, like I mentioned that example of when I had wonderful people like Ted Olson and Larry Thompson. Actually, I should mention my good friend Alice Fisher, who was at the Justice Department then and later led the criminal division, uh, and my dear friend um, Kate O'Byrne, who was right. a great role, role model for me, a total wonderful model for me. You have to have those great people around you. Any advice for sort of picking your Picking your areas that you want to work on, finding your passion as it relates to those issues that really resonate with you. What's your maybe one piece of advice as it relates to that? Because you can find yourself pulled in a million different different directions. So how do you how do you kind of narrow down and distill? Okay, here's really what I'm trying to have an impact on. You know, when you go into Congress, whether you're a staffer or a member, so there are kind of two different types. You can be a congressional Kardashian, which is being famous for being famous, and you really don't do anything, but you can be on TV all the time. Or you can decide to look at some issues that you really care about, maybe that are important to your district or that over your lifetime are important to you, and really buckle down and work on those. I think that's the way, to, that's obviously my advice to go, where to go. The people who get things done, like you know, getting things like sexual harassment legislation done, um, human trafficking, those are things like the sexual harassment one, I didn't realize how much our laws hadn't been updated. And when this crisis came forward, I was on the House Administration Committee. And so it was sort of those issues and my committee in the moment met. But other issues like the tax issue I've worked on since I became a Republican in the 80s because I realized, boy, letting people keep more of their own money to take care of their families makes a lot of sense. And then got the 2000, where I worked, you know, Marco Rubio introduced that bill in the Senate. So I had sort of those signature issues that I really like to work on. But other things like human trafficking, I came to do that while I was at the Justice Department and Congressman Wolf, who I'd worked with and who was a great role model also. Um, he started being very active on those issues. So I learned to work on them from his experience and the connections there. And then when I was in the State House, we had to upgrade our laws and Initially, I had to fight my own team to thought, oh, our laws are fine. And the first year, we didn't get them passed. And there's a example. First year, we didn't get them passed. I didn't go yell and scream and call my colleagues names because there were people on both sides who weren't for it. We had a coalition of us. We went around and educated them, got more people to come in and really knock on doors and talk to colleagues about it, get a little bit more press publicity. And that second year, we passed bills. And every year after, even some of the guys who initially didn't want to pass the bills started writing up bills themselves because they found the the holes in the law. 
So that was a way to make someone who wasn't your colleague on a bill show them this is a good issue. National security issues, which I'm very passionate about now, that was something that I hadn't worked on that much in the 90s when I was a staffer. But after 9-11, my best friend, Barbara Olson, was killed on 9-11. I was working at the Justice Department after that with Ted Olson. So I got a national security graduate degree of the kind I never expected I would get because there was this crisis and the Justice Department, where I was a public affairs chief, but I had to learn all that law, know that, and it really held me in good stead later on to know the people and the views and a lot of the how you go at these issues and understand that there's a range of views here and the people who have the range are not bad people. That people who were on different sides of issues are my friends on both sides of these very you know, significant national security debates. And, you know, if you were for the Iran deal or against it, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just you came down in a different way. I was against it, but I know good friends who were on the other side. But that experience definitely helped me form my passion and concern for strengthening our military. I feel like that issue throughout my career has been something that has been very important to me, no matter what role you have. Yeah, absolutely. One question that inevitably comes up for women running for office is this notion of likability. I think some good advice that I can um, give to women on this, no matter what, first of all, be yourself. And you've got to be yourself and find out what's your right style and who you are. And have fun. Have fun. These jobs are very difficult, challenging jobs. They're a great privilege, whether it's a national security job or, or, you know, working over at HHS or any of the myriad things you can do being an ambassador. Have fun and have a sense of humor. I oftentimes say, you know, people always think Congress or public, you know, public policy, the movie um, was a little bit more like House of Cards instead. But my experience often was a lot like Veep. And it's good. (laughs) And and the people who are the most kind of annoying to be around in politics are the people who don't have a sense of humor. I had some colleagues over over the years, uh, male colleagues who had no sense of humor and if you can't laugh at yourself and laugh with other people and at the end of the day sit down and really be happy about what you're doing, then this will be a, a very difficult. So take your work very, very seriously, but don't take yourself as seriously and make sure you are getting, you know, they say get your oxygen first. And I think that oxygen is having that fun. For me, it was, you know, my kids and my grandkids, but also my friends, my girlfriends having that core group of girlfriends who are there for you who don't need to know about your work life. They're just there as a support system. Mm -hmm. So have fun. (laughs) Barbara, thank you so much. It was really, really great to have you here. Well, thank you and all you're doing for women and leadership and highlighting it. Because one of the biggest problems is that the media did not cover women in a lot of their leading roles and did not cover a lot of these issues in the way they should. And so I think you find Uh, I know I've shared your podcast with so many people because this is something where women say, where am I in the picture or where am I in the audio? You've given an answer to that. So thank you for your leadership. Oh, you're very kind. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I know all your leadership when you were, you know, (laughs) working in the private sector, too. So this is a great new chapter for you. (laughs) And we appreciated you when you were over there and getting helping women run. 
And now you're here highlighting the whole gamut. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to have to have Barbara back. (laughs) To learn more, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find links to an acceptable loss, which you can rent or download anywhere that you stream your movies. It's terrific, and we highly recommend it. Also, a big thank you to the producers of An Acceptable Loss, Colleen Griffin and Joe Chappelle, as well as Candy Strait, for their support of She Said, She Said, and for helping to make this series of conversations possible. 